0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Daisy, And we are the Shock Doctors. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Cobweb, which it seems like Lionsgate tried really hard to just sort of bury. <laughs> I don't know if you looked at all into, I guess, the release details of this film, but it, it no. came out theatrically and first of all they released it last friday the same day as barbenheimer yes so that was already a terrible idea also it's a horror movie why wouldn't you just hold on to it until the fall particularly given the competition of that weekend specifically and also it seems like they didn't release it in that many theaters and it's even more confusing on top of all of those things because it's not one of those where they released it in a few theaters and then simultaneously offered it for rent on Amazon Prime or whatever your pay-per-view streaming option of choice is. It seems like it's a theatrical exclusive, but like not that many screens, which is even weirder.
1: Yeah, old school. No, I mean, they should have sat on it until autumn until pumpkin times it is it, it, it and not just because it's any old horror movie it has a sort of halloweenish flavor to it yeah for um, an,
0: any number of reasons and we'll get into them
1: yeah it was a i knew i knew nothing about this movie going in not the release strategy nor even a bare bones synopsis the only thing that i saw in passing was that it was included in the so-called blacklist, which is an annually published list of the best unproduced screenplays kicking around Hollywood, the, Mm -hmm. the idea being, you know, like, how is it that no one has thrown money at these things? Now, the term blacklist, as it pertains to screenwriting, the first movie that phrase calls to mind for me is, and I suspect always will be, Stoker the uh-huh. Park Chan-wook movie, because that was the first time I ever heard the phrase blacklist used in connection with movie making. And ever since then, and uh, Stoker is no exception, although I like it more than Cobweb, the blacklist has been just like a guaranteed recipe for a 6 out of 10 movie for me. <laughs> I have I have never, as far as I'm aware, maybe there I saw a movie that I was really wowed by, that was on the blacklist and I just didn't happen to hear about it but every movie that touts itself as having been on the blacklist invariably I'm always like yeah I can kind of see I can kind of <laughs> see why that screenplay got kicked around town a little while none of them have ever really grabbed me by the collar and shaken me
0: I feel like there's been a few that it's been brought to my attention were on the blacklist and I thought after watching them oh that was actually really good what took so long but I can't think of any of them off the top of my head and I think you're right it is often the case at least that yeah okay this is this isn't shit but it's not like the suits were all utter morons (laughs) (laughs) for leaving this on the shelf as they did but uh, yeah, I don't know, just just again, going back to the release strategy, it's it was super weird. I had to drive an hour to go see this movie, which is not unprecedented for me in particular in just general movie-going terms, but even for the podcast, I, and back when Matt and I were living in approximately the same place, we were... Would sometimes go kind of far afield, but it was just super strange that there were like two theaters, both about an hour away in different directions, that were playing more than one showing of this film a day, and then there was like a smattering of other ones where it was like once a day at you know 10 p.m. Just very odd. But in any case, the other wrinkle on this film for me is that I'm typically very timely with my arrival for a theatrical viewing experience but in this particular case I did get into the theater three minutes after showtime and I assumed as per usual I might have missed a trailer or two or as has become increasingly more common there would still be commercials on they wouldn't have even gotten to the trailers as of three minutes after showtime
1: halfway through the M&M's uh, yeah. or,
0: or or the Chevy ads or whatever. Yeah. Instead, I'm pretty sure I missed the first three minutes of the movie.
1: Damn. Which... They really did banish this thing to the shadow realm. Yeah. <laughs> they did like no trailers, no ads. Fuck it. Uh, <laughs> no no Nicole Kidman monologues are going to grace
0: <laughs> no, this, well, uh... this
1: film that we've shunted into uh, obsolescence.
0: Yeah, very weird. Not that three minutes of screen time amounts to that much podcast synopsis time, but Matt will be on his own for the briefest of moments there at the start of that.
1: I don't have any notes on the first even five to ten minutes, I'd wager, and that's all a little bit of a a blur, but um, I don't know. The the movie's okay.
0: We'll figure it out, Uh, but to give the brief preview before we launch in, the film follows a little boy named Peter, who lives in a spooky house with his two parents, who are pretty creepy.
1: <laughs> yeah, the two parents, their performances are writ large, shall we say. They reminded me of, I always forget their names, I jotted them down, the two Twin Peaks alums who are in People Under the Stairs, Wendy Roby and Everett McGill, they right. reminded me of the two of them in... His- People balls a damn buckshot <laughs> it's, and that's just not the kind of movie this is i obviously they were directed to behave that way because they're both doing it in concert with one another but it's rather strange because everyone else is relatively terrestrial and then they're very twitchy and kind of operatically creepy uh, yeah. in a way that i that i never got on board with
0: it's kind of interesting. So for the sake of context, the father is played by the guy who I I think he plays Homelander on The Boys, the star of many a meme.
1: Yeah, got a very gifable face, that man.
0: Yeah, and then the mother is played by Lizzie Kaplan. There's a little bit of residue, I think, from her performance in season two of Castle Rock, where she plays oh. a, a young Annie Wilkes.
1: Very much so, yeah. I mean, I liked her more in Season 2 of... I was trying to remember where I knew her from. I kept thinking that I was just thinking of Sarah Paulson, but (laughs) I have actually seen Season 2 of Castle Rock, as you know. Yes. Um, And, uh, yeah, no, not Sarah Paulson, but within spitting distance of that kind of American horror story hamminess.
0: Yes. Anyway, not only are his parents quite creepy, but there's also something else going on in the house, and we'll get there.
1: So we open with, oh boy, I really have have my fucking lifeline yanked away from (laughs) me. I don't remember anything about this movie's opening several minutes. The boy hears knocking and rustling of a night in his bedroom. There is something or someone living behind the walls And we're given to understand that it's a creepy little ghost girl. Everything about the presentation is leading us to believe that it's a girl who was murdered by his parents and is trying to coach him on how to survive and how to escape. It's a little bit black phone. Yeah, I was just going to say. And I'm trying to remember how this information is deployed. It's a conversation that the three of them, parents and son, are having over dinner. There was a child in this neighborhood who went missing some time ago, and we have every reason to think that the parents had a hand in that.
0: It's kind of put to him as his parents' justification for not letting him trick-or-treat.
1: Yeah, for their overprotectiveness.
0: Because she went missing on Halloween night however many years before. Mm -hmm. So that's why his mom in particular doesn't want him out trick-or-treating. And yeah, just between the parents just acting skittish while they sort of relate this story. Again, the mother in particular basically didn't even want to talk about it. And the father kind of deployed all this information. And then also the creepy ghost girl in the wall. Basically, not right at the beginning, but within 20, 25 minutes more or less, it's kind of disclosed, hey, this is who this is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, this isn't our first rodeo. I figured I had connected all the dots. And it turns out much of this is, I have to say, a pretty functional red herring. To what end, I'm less sure, because the actual reveal leaves something to be desired. But it is not as blindingly obvious as it at first appears. And so I guess the film is to be commended for that. There's a little bit of Chekhov's blank business where the dad is strewing rat poison or some kind of poison around the halls and the kid is watching him do this. Peter, did you say that was his name? Yeah. And Peter says, like, can I eat it? And Bees rightly pointed out that he's (laughs) a little too old for those kind of under-the-sink imbibings. You know, it's like (laughs) if you were just like six or seven, You know, but he's just like, he's aged out of that kind of curiosity, you know, unless the box has hearts, stars, and horseshoes on it, you know, he he ought to know better. He has a teacher of whom he is fond, and it is reciprocal. They uh, are sort of, they endear themselves to one another in a scene where... He uh, sees a spider on his desk, a good-sized spider, kind of beetly-deedly-deedling along. (laughs) And uh, she puts it under a glass. And given that the movie is called Cobweb, and that I went into it basically completely blind, outside of the thing about it being on the blacklist, which did bias me against it to a small degree. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I didn't think that it was going to be about arachnoid creepy crawlies per se. I figured that the title would be, why do I want to say alliterative? What, you know, maybe allegorical, that's still not exactly the right word. But, you know, the title would be kind of abstract and poetical to an extent. It's,
0: it's an allusion.
1: Allusion, very good. Yeah. And that's sort of half right. But nonetheless, the first couple times that he hears something go bump in the night and hops out of bed to go, you know, investigate or switch on a nightlight or whatever... I kept thinking a big tarantula is going to jump out and eat him. You know? that's, <laughs> that's, that's one way to get me on the edge of my seat. So the teacher gives them all a Halloween-ish assignment, which is to do a spooky drawing for extra credit or something. And the drawing that he turns in is of a boy in his bed in a pitch black room shouting, help me via speech bubble. And this alarms her. And so she goes to the house to perform a kind of wellness check, and she doesn't really try to disguise her intentions at all. I mean, her tone isn't that accusatory, but she basically says to the mother who answers the door, you know, explain this picture. <laughs> it's, it's, she comes on pretty strong, and uh, the mother matches her energy and is wildly sinister. And says, you know, oh, Peter has an overactive imagination. Please excuse me. Slam. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone is putting their cards on the fucking table (laughs) right off the bat. The kid has a couple midnight tete-a-tetes with the thing, the little girl in his walls. And at first he's in denial. He says, I'm imagining you. She assures him, no, you're not. And then it goes in kind of a Tyler Durden-y direction where he hears her voice at school. So now I'm thinking, all right, the boy is off his rocker and he's just hearing things. And this is like a bad seed movie that's maybe trying to obfuscate the fact that it's a bad seed movie because the parents are also so creepy. Maybe we're going to find out at the end, after he kills them with rat poison, that... They were actually totally normal, and he was just—his his perception was out of whack because he's here and shit, and he's, you know, loco bananas. So this is a weird little detour because the Bad Seed stuff doesn't go very far. It just covers this one little vignette, basically, and that's it.
0: Well, it's kind of instrumental, really, because basically it just gets him kicked out of school and kind of out of range of his teacher's help. Yeah, that's true. I think it's really just a plot device more than anything. And the movie is cut together kind of strangely. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more after the break. But the upshot that I'm going for here is that I don't necessarily think he was hearing the voice at school.
1: No, I agree. I think that was an, that was an auditory flashback. That's just not how it plays in the moment.
0: Yeah, it's more of a kind of sloppy cross-cutting yes. between the voiceover from the conversation like the night before and then he's at school. But anyway, the bad seed thing that the voice gets him to do is he has this bully at school. The bully never calls him a freak, so that's,
1: you know, points for that. (laughs) That's true. But the mother does say that the missing child was a traumatic experience, and that's become my new bugbear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) True. But the bully is nevertheless written with a little too much, like, unmotivated psycho in him. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit too hostile. Uh, you yeah, know, and it's, not... it, it's been a long time since I've dealt with elementary school bullies. To be fair, but he seems a little too, just like extreme. Yeah, most I mean, of the I time. think
1: I think in order to get away with that level of sociopathy, you have to go the Stephen King route and make them like a seventeen-year-old greaser who's been held back five to ten times. You know? <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's
0: just this little blonde Moppet who doesn't really right. look substantially more threatening than Peter.
1: No, they're both fairly cherub-faced.
0: Yeah, but nevertheless, he at one point takes Peter's uh, painted a pumpkin—they've all painted faces on some pumpkins at school—takes Peter's pumpkin and smashes it on the playground, does a couple other things, tripping him on the bus and so forth. And so finally, the voice of the girl in the wall tells Peter, like, you got to stand up for yourself. You got to make him scared of you. And so Peter shoves the kid and ends up pushing him down the stairs, causing him to break a leg. And this gets him expelled, which puts him at home all the time now, as opposed to much of the time.
1: And I can see how this was a plot device, as you said, and how it was efficient. For the screenwriter, it does lead to a certain amount of monotony because we are now basically locked at home with him. And we get these two kind of one note performances from the parents. And eventually we get a kind of fun reveal with the girl in the wall. But that's sort of a long time coming. Not very long because it's a sub 90 minute affair overall. But we get another wellness check from the teacher where, again, cards on the table poker faces off the dad greets her at the door with a hammer in his hand like he's ready to like he's ready to brain her on the spot mm-hmm. and you know won't you come sit down and she i just made be, coffee <laughs> with this hammer <laughs> but i ground the beans by hand with he's this also, hammer he's, he's, he's bleeding copiously he's got a serious gash on his arm and it's it's like audibly dripping that audibly and i mean it's like making like plink plunk noises and it's also just oozing blood in our faces and in her face the teacher's and she's like are you okay and he's like (laughs) he says he was doing some woodworking or something i don't remember the pretense but it's flimsy and unmemorable and the parents are just huge creeps and the teacher gets thoroughly creeped out and it winds up fleeing the house, and there's a slightly clever bit of business with a uh, washing machine that's making a lot of racket and is concealing the fact—I uh, jumped over this—they have moved the fridge out of the way in the kitchen, revealing a little Harry Potter door, basically, which they have shoved the kid into, and he has um, been dwelling in the basement.
0: Yeah, the weird thing is that it's an undersized door— Although not the smallest door in the house, as we come to find out, no. But it appears to be the only door into the basement. It is. Which it's is not just spacious. like. It's not just like a little weird ass hidey hole. It is the basement. <laughs> so, so apparently they just like don't use the basement unless they move the refrigerator out of the way. But uh, right. anyway, yeah. So they've. You once he's been expelled and they get him home, it's like, well, we're doing this for your own good. You have to live in the cellar like an animal for days or however long it is. And during this second wellness check, there's like a a thumping washing machine that for a while obscures Peter, like kicking at the door because he can hear that the teacher is in the house and he's trying to get her attention. Then the washing machine cuts out. He kicks some more, although stops yelling, which is a little bit convenient.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: And then, what's that noise? Uh, washing machine.
1: The washing machine.
0: And then the washing machine starts up again.
1: It's like the... Yeah, as, as, as his grip tightens on the handle of the hammer.
0: Other than the thumping, there is a distinct difference between the noise of washing machine and no washing machine, but apparently her ears aren't that sharp.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just their good fortune, I guess, that they happened to be washing, you know, a pair of sneakers or something that was, you know, making all that racket.
0: But anyway, I I thought she was going to get brained here, but, you know, maybe they're laying it on so thick. So thick, yeah. Perhaps I should have known they were baiting me.
1: Well, I just... I don't know. I, they were laying it on so thick that I just figured this is not how you treat someone you're planning to allow to escape. Right. You know, <laughs> this, is like, this is how you treat someone who you're planning to intimidate before removing them from the equation. You Correct. know, you're just trying to scare them a little before you splatter their head all over your coffee table. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the bit with the washing machine enough, him not yelling at the worst, most inopportune time, is annoying. There are a few things about the basement that annoy me. The thing that you mentioned about how it is apparently their only means of accessing the basement is through this strange hatch (laughs) behind the fridge. It's also, as I said, rather spacious down there. Kids got a lot of wiggle room. I feel like fucking Carrie, you know, Sissy Spacek, only had a little prayer closet, a cramped little three-by-three room. Mm-hmm. you can do better especially with i mean it, it's cobwebby and unfurnished and unpleasant
0: and, and it's child
1: abuse but he does okay for himself down there And know the biggest problem that it presents is that in a weird almost unconscious way him getting thrown into the basement sort of cements this impression that the voice he's been hearing belongs to a ghost because you just think like there's not room enough for both of them to be consigned to a weird, secreted part of the house. You know what I mean? Like it, when, sure. when it comes, to, when it is eventually revealed to us who and what the voice is, it's sort of strange credulity somewhat that this. You know, well, but we'll get there in due time. I just thought that was either deliberate sleight of hand or kind of a strange oversight. You know, I mean. I know that it I don't know. I, I it just didn't compute somehow that the house had that many nooks and crannies to cram unwanted people into and that, they, <laughs> and that they and that they and that they wouldn't intersect or overlap in any way. Right. I figured once he was thrown in the basement and he was alone down there that that was that, but apparently not. Apparently not. So he has another heart to heart with the ghost at night and she introduces herself finally she says i'm your sister and the kid has a nightmare about his folks that plays like the visit kind of the m night Shyamalan movie the mother goes feral basically and runs down the hallway at him and then he comes to and the mother is consoling him he says i had a nightmare she says what about and he lies and says i don't remember the ghost girl quote-unquote directs him to go digging in the garden and he finds a pint-sized skull in a shallow grave i have to say he does not have does not have to go at it for very long and they've been planting stuff out there they've got a pumpkin patch there's a strange scene later on where their pumpkins are afflicted by some kind of contagious rot and the dad is very put out about this and he's acting like they've got a hard winter ahead of them because their pumpkin crop didn't come in. You know, he's right. acting like it's their livelihood.
0: <laughs> well, he 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 seems to be at home at weird times, and the mother is almost always at home. So it does make you wonder if the pumpkin patch
1: is their primary <laughs> source of income. <laughs> well, I mean, at best, it would be seasonal, right? And right. They've got. 20 odd pumpkins back there. That's well, not, even, you know. I mean, it might no, be more no than that, but wanna... even
0: if it's 50, you know, how much do you sell a pumpkin for? Like 10 bucks? Right. Or 20 well, and... if you're in a rich area and you can scam some yuppies. I mean, that's, that's $1,000. <laughs> that's nothing. <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, he finds the skull. Obviously, we think that it's the little girl's skull the one who's been talking to him, although she says that it belongs to somebody else. And I didn't actually catch this. Maybe you can enlighten me, but she tries to explain the skull's provenance. And I thought surely that was just a smokescreen to throw us off the scent of him talking to a ghost. Because I, I, it was very hard for me to tell at this point what the movie wanted us to believe. We have gotten a glimpse of the girl behind the wall at this point, and she looked corporeal enough. We just see kind of a shadowy eye looking out at him through a peephole. You see, I think
0: what I took from the movie at this point, what it was supposed to be getting across to me, which is, in a sense, what ends up being the truth, but what I understood was that the girl he's been talking to is, in fact, his sister. She's got something wrong with her, or the parents just didn't like her, and they shut her up in a crawl space somewhere in the walls, and she's been there for years, and the skull, and presumably other bones out in the garden, belong to the little girl who disappeared. Uh Uh-huh. I initially thought that maybe the little girl that disappeared was supposed to be his sister, but no, I think it's two different girls. Now, as we come to find out, the girl in the walls is his sister, and the body in the yard does belong to that little girl, but the culprit in the murder is not who we thought.
1: Yeah, I. Well, more on that later. Things come to a head one night when they're uh, sitting down eating dinner, the three of them. And this is how fucking adams family these people are this is how like kind of goofy and elevated the spookiness of this house is the dinner that they sit down to is like this prison mess hall slop (laughs) <laughs> this, <you> know, <laughs> this, like, complete. You know, they, they, they're sitting there, and the dad is lifting the spoon to his lips, and he says, "Sweetheart, mm-hmm. did you do something different to the gruel?" <laughs> I, he, doesn't he, doesn't, he doesn't
0: say gruel. No, he, no, he calls
1: soup. He calls it soup. That's true, <laughs> but it's kind of a misnomer. Uh, and then he slowly, very laboriously, I thought, puts together that he and his wife have been poisoned because the boy has not touched his bowl of grayish sludge. And so then he, you know, oh, call 911! <laughs> uh, and then he pukes up a symbiote suit, basically. He, like, pukes a huge quantity of black ichor all over the table.
0: Well, I mean, I, I took it to be black blood, because yes. if you ingest the right kind of poison, that's what you're going to throw up. The weird right. thing about this scene to me is, First of all, it takes him a long time to put two and two together, like you say. Yes. But even after it seems as though he's figured it out, we see the mother take like two more bites and the dad doesn't stop her. It's very odd. It's like he's perfectly convinced that his son has poisoned them both and he just lets his wife eat more poison. Yeah, very strange.
1: I- uh, yeah, that is strange. I and I, yeah, it is. It is blood. I thought for a nanosecond, like, are they aliens? Like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> but just because the the movie had me so sort of, it could have gone any number of directions at this point. They could have been fucking werewolves for all I knew. <laughs> sure. uh, I, I just thought that the blackness was ever so slightly overdone. But yeah, maybe. Yeah, certainly what it's meant to be. So he is down for the count. We never see him again. The mother puts up a little bit more of a fight. And kudos for that, I think, because in a fairly recent episode, I don't know which one or when it would have been topical for me to bring this up, but I've been saying since I was in high school that The Shining was one of my favorite horror movies, but it would be orders of magnitude scarier, in fact, unwatchably scary, if it was gender flipped and Shelley Duvall lost her marbles and chased Danny around with an axe just because for whatever reason... As part of the reason that Antichrist, the Lars von Trier movie, flips my lid the way it does, mm-hmm. I find mad women just for some unknown, possibly evolutionary reason, <laughs> some, some buried instinctual thing. I just I, I find mad women scarier than mad men. So, unfortunately, the movie exhausts that possibility very quickly. There's just sort of a quick scramble up the stairs. And then she also succumbs to the poison, falls down the stairs, and then is heard no more.
0: Yeah. And at this point, there's still, I don't know, 15 or even 20 minutes left in the movie, but there isn't that much that really
1: happens. Well, sort of. I mean, at this point, you think, A, because you've got an eye on the runtime, and B, I mean, it's a short movie to begin with, but if the movie ended here, it would feel very slight. I mean, your ass can tell the difference between 70 minutes and 90 minutes. And so you think like, okay, some other source of peril has to emerge. And I had increasingly been getting the sense that the little girl behind the wall was going to turn out to be nefarious and at this point my money was on her and this is almost as outlandish as the parents being aliens <laughs> you know, i thought that she, I, I was still banking on her being a ghost or a spirit of some kind and i just figured that she was like an insidious demon of some <laughs> of some variety and sure. maybe maybe like the three of them the family had moved into a haunted house and the parents had snapped under the strain of trying to protect their son from that malignant influence and this ghost or demon or whatever was entreating the boy to help it escape. Because at one point, the mother sees the peephole and and there's a torn bit of wallpaper where he and his sister have been communicating and she says, what did she tell you? Again, no one in this movie has a fucking poker face worth a damn. No. (laughs) And uh, okay, so they know about the whatever it is. You get the sense that it's up to no good, but you don't know. Well, anyway, he lets it out. There's a different hidey hole behind the clock. We've got this big old grandfather clock. Kid pushes it out of the way, opens up the hatch, and then is greeted by sinister laughter that would, like, be a prelude to a boss fight in a video game. You know, it's very, like, (laughs) cartoonishly evil laughter.
0: Well, yeah, it's laughter, and then when it starts speaking to him, it's got, like, Pazuzu voice. It's, like, Mercedes
1: McCambridge-level, like... Yeah, you've let me out, Peter. You know <laughs> okay. yeah, sounds just sounds just like Harvey Firestand. <laughs> oh crap <laughs> I didn't
0: think I got quite there, but maybe I did. Uh, uh. Well the reason I said not that much happens is because so simultaneous with this kind of cross cut, we've got the bully. And I guess like an older brother and some of his friends scheming to get revenge for his broken leg. And then also... The boy has
1: also signaled the teacher for help, which we neglected to mention.
0: Yeah, and so she's scrambling to get to the place too. And the last 15 minutes are basically... This merry-go-round of four bullies and bully accomplices all getting wrecked by the person from the walls, and then also Peter and the teacher like trying to escape and running around. All of the bullies get killed. At some point in all this, we discover that Peter's sister, because at this point we just take that part of it at face value, she is in fact deformed. It mostly seems to be just her face. She's, she's well. I mean,
1: sh- well.
0: She's- <laughs> so I'll, I'll get there. She's got yeah. this this sort of. I don't even know how to describe her face. First she's, of all, we she's never got a
1: face. She's got a face like a creepy pasta thumbnail from ten or fifteen years okay. ago.
0: Okay, that's accurate. That'll work. But other than that, I think she's normal. Okay, so she skitters around like a
1: spider. I mean, she's Hellspawn. Yeah, I mean, the movie kind of gets away with it because you get the sense that this is how she's used to perambulating inside the walls.
0: Right. I don't think her body is, like, physically spidery. I (laughs) think she has just started behaving like a spider after living in the
1: walls for so long. Which is a creepy notion. However, there are a few shots. There are occasional moments where you'll... The movie is actually fairly deft in the way that it gives you just, like, quick glimpses of her. It's cheeky, where... Ah, 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 and, you know, just, like, a, a, little, a little... Actually, I was going to say a hand here or a foot there. 99% of the time, it's hair. She goes everywhere hair first. Or the hair is trailing behind her everywhere she goes. But whether she's entering a room or leaving it the hair is the only thing you see Mm. that's fucking that novelty song that like uh i think i'm turning japanese should have just played over this whole sequence because (laughs) more or less out of nowhere the movie elects to become a j-horror movie right where she's just grudging all over the place dispatching the bullies and some of the kills are kind of neat we see her hair is full of spiders by the way, so the title's not totally off base or illusion. Um, <laughs> we see her hair like dragging over a piano that one of the bullies has been demolishing with a bat or a crowbar or something. And then she goes for his ankles, drags him under the piano, and he just splooshes. Like there's just this cascade of blood. That comes out from under the piano. It's like she opened a portal to the salsa dimension and dragged him into it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that's and there's like a couple other things like that that occur that do make her seem supernatural. Now she isn't, textually speaking, but we'll see. Like there, there's a there's another shot where she's got a bully. She's out of sight. She's like pulling him around a corner like, oh, God, she's got me. She's got me. And then like he's being attacked by a xenomorph or a velociraptor, he is pulled like halfway to the ceiling up the wall as he's clawing, trying to get away. And that feels like a kill out of a movie about demons or dinosaurs or something rather than this Jane Eyre thing. Is that the one with the mad woman in the attic? I can't. Yes. I get my, my yes, brontes crossed. Okay.
0: So I there's a couple other things that I'm gonna to touch on after the break in terms of you no, know, is, it's straight supernatural out of, or not. So it's straight
1: out of Jurassic Park. I'm thinking of the guy in the very first scene. Right. Like right. lands halfway in the shoot, cage. Shoot. Ah! shoot ah! Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So
0: after all this, all the bullies are dead, and then the teacher gets in the house sets peter free because the sister has shut him in behind the grandfather clock little door hatch she gets an achilles tendon slashed but still manages to walk around the teacher i mean ultimately the final confrontation ends up in the basement there's a pit in the basement that the sister has actually spoken about. It's got a grate above it and goes down like 15, 20, 25 feet, whatever it is. First, she puts Peter down there, and then Peter Rapunzel's his way up her hair.
1: It, he That's exactly right. He, he you know, Rapunzel, Rapunzel. It, and that would have actually worked for me. If the whole movie had a little bit more of a fairy tale tenor to it, like if the ghost, if the, I keep calling her a ghost, if the voice in the wall had uh, like been telling him bedtime stories and then he like Rapunzel's his way to victory at the end, I could live with that. But as it plays, current, it's a tad goofy because the sister is doing battle with the teacher topside. Right. Uh, uh, (laughs) You know, above the pit. And so as he's pulling up the hair, she's like, ah! ah," (laughs) (laughs) It's just just kind of comical. And I, I feel like it's not supposed to be. This is also, I think, when you finally see too much of the sister. And she just looks like a contortionist. Like, the best thing in all of the worst Possession movies, all of the worst Exorcist movies, are the... Skinny contortionist chicks that they cast as the possessed women, you know, because they can pretzel themselves up into all kinds of crazy contorted positions, and that's what this actress is doing. But I think it just sort of it looks a little bit too much like a professional contortionist and not like a monster spider spider monster, yeah. Who you know, or like, or a mutant shut in,
0: yeah. Anyway, Peter scrambles up his sister's hair he and the teacher kind of force her into the pit and then they close the grate and as they're about to leave basically the sister's like you'll never be rid of me essentially
1: yeah well first she tries to put the the friendly kid sister voice back on which does not work for obvious reasons although the teacher's face indicates that she's worried it will Because she gets this reaction shot where it looks like she's about to say, like, no, Peter, don't listen. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Thankfully, the movie comes to its senses before it commits to that.
0: Right. And we just see, like, a, a montage of presumably future Peter being scared of shit in the dark. You'll never be rid of me. And then it immediately cuts to end credits.
1: Yeah, she, like, looms up behind him and he turns around and, ah... Roll credits. I like the idea of the ending. I like the idea that she is instilling this fear at him that's going to have him jumping at shadows the rest of his life. It's actually the first time I felt a twinge of fear about this creature because the very last minute or so does a good job of grounding you in Peter's perspective. Now, I wish it had been a little more drawn out, a little bit quieter, pregnant with anticipation let him uh, brush his teeth and get into his gym jams and uh, oh what was that yeah well but instead uh, she's just she's narrating over the whole thing and it feels very That
0: well i'm i'm gonna get into a whole thing about that uh-huh. post break so uh we'll get to that and then we'll be back it's okay just a battery. I heard it again.
1: No more nightmares tonight. Okay, champ? <laughs> Daddy! This is getting ridiculous. This is an old house, there's bound to be bumps in the night.
0: Hello listeners, it's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at Shock Doctors Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts. The podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, Feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. What is that? The banging.
1: Peter! Peter! Enough! Enough! You don't hear anything, Peter.
0: Beautiful imagination. It's going to get you into trouble one day. And we're back. So, as I was saying, just as we were leading into the break, the ending is, as you say, kind of truncated in a way that I felt much of the whole movie was. I don't know if you got this vibe at all, but there's there's just, you know, far be it from me to criticize a movie for trying to be lean and mean. God knows not every movie certainly doesn't need to be two and a half hours, but many movies don't even need to be two hours, and there's just... There's a lot of bloat out there in the horror genre as much as any other, so it's certainly an admirable motivation to try and make your picture lean and mean and just very tight, no fat on those bones. But something about kind of this whole movie, it's like they cut down to the bone and then they kept cutting a little bit, at least in certain places. it just Sometimes it felt like it was cut almost like a trailer.
1: I know what you mean. It has the feel of like an like an overlong trailer or like an overblown short film. It's got almost like a short film premise to it, or a slightness to it. Even the... it's, it's a pretty simple bait-and-switch when you get right down to it. You know, you think that the parents are these psycho murderers, and there's a damsel in distress. Oh no, she's the actual boogeyman. I, I feel like you could get there inside of half an hour and I wouldn't miss whatever was left on the cutting room floor.
0: Yeah, I I think that's true. But the flip side is, the way the movie is built as such, it does other stuff to make you wait to get there, but at the same time, so much of that other stuff, there's a lot of cross-cutting and layering in this movie, I feel like, where a scene that would normally be too presumably back-to-back scenes in another movie are just kind of layered over each other in a way that reduces the impact of both
1: yeah i think i know what you mean the funniest example of that for me was i think just to remind us that the teacher is still on her way right you know, dur- during all of the bloodletting when the bullies are getting wiped out it cuts to the teacher driving around again it's halloween night her trick-and-treaters out and about and uh, there's just this creepy little girl looks like she's dressed like a standard little pink princess or glinda the good witch or something mm. she's just standing in the middle of the road staring down the teacher's car and the teacher's like well get out of the way Move! <laughs> and uh, but it's not it's not cut together with any urgency you know it's not like i, I i'm describing it like it's a like it's a gary oldman in dark knight going like mouth the curb but it's it, not it's you know not
0: like that at all
1: it has nowhere near that kind of urgency. It's just this.
0: The cutting is abrupt and yet somehow it's not, there's no propulsiveness to yeah, it. Yeah,
1: it's it, it's at once abrupt and flaccid.
0: <laughs> and yes, so much of the movie is like that. I can't, first of all, I saw this movie yesterday. As it turned out, we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu. So I don't have that many scenes on like snap Recall. But also, just—it it, there were multiple different times throughout the movie, and then, yeah, culminating at the end, where sh- shit was just kind of piled up on itself in a way that was kind of counterproductive. Like you were saying, you know, with the ending, if the movie had allowed itself to let the denouement play out a little more organically, even if you let the sister have some dialogue along the lines of, you'll never be rid of me, I'll always be lurking in the shadows, whatever. You let her say that, and then the teacher and Peter escape the house.
1: You get the obligatory shot of him sitting in the back of the ambulance with one of those scratchy-looking gray blankets around his shoulders, like all these movies fucking end with. And it, it, that is filler, but there's a reason that shots like that exist. You know, you gotta create breathing room for things like this.
0: Yeah, and depending on how you did it, you could even stretch it to a couple of minutes where, like, okay, it's six months later, and, you know, maybe the teacher's fucking adopted him or is fostering him or whatever. Or maybe he's yeah. just living somewhere else and he's going to bed one night. And yeah, then creepy shit happens, and that's how you end your movie. But like you were saying, she just sort of says all of this threatening stuff. And it's layered over a couple of shots of Peter in various like dark rooms or situations, and then it cuts immediately to credits. It's just it's abrupt and yet flaccid. as, well, and as and you were weird, saying,
1: because she's narrating over the whole thing. It, I mean, it's supposed to play like his fear you know that he's he's projecting her into all of these shadowy corners and that's a scary concept but because she's narrating over the whole thing it sort of feels like it belongs to her like it's actually her projection it plays almost more like an anticipatory fantasy that she's having like ooh, wait till i get out of here i'm gonna get you like she's like she's salivating like she can't wait to get the in, drop on this kid in a weird uh, way
0: it almost plays like the end of usual suspects <laughs>
1: <laughs> well what the ending that it reminded me of and it had it winds up being a less successful version of this although it had the potential to be much scarier I think just because the the nature of the beast is sort of scarier in this movie at least on paper on the blacklist <laughs> back when this movie was nothing but words on a page and uh, you know flaccid editing had any say in the matter or overacting on the part of the parents the ending that it reminded me of was summer of 84 mm. where the serial killer issues the exact same threat to the child protagonist he says you're going to be looking over your shoulder the rest of your life every night as you go to bed you're going to think that i'm about to jump out and grab you and one of these nights you're gonna be right and we're left with that threat lingering over the ending of the movie and then there's another bit of narration that belongs to the kid rather than the killer which is the right move gets us back into his pov that the axe has not fallen yet when the credits roll in that movie and i think summer of 84 is fine it's not amazing but it does that more or less exactly the same ending with just way more breathing room and way more confidence. It's not in such a fucking hurry to shoo people out of the theater <laughs> as this movie is.
0: Yeah. So that was strange. I'd like to ask a question. I don't know if you have a plausible answer or if you will be as much at a loss as I am.
1: If it's the question I think you're going to ask, then I'm just as flummoxed as you are. But
0: Well, we're about to find we'll know. out.
1: Yeah, we'll know in a moment.
0: If the parents aren't the bad guys, why are they putting him in the basement?
1: All right, I was going to ask if the sister killed that trick-or-treater. You know, a Halloween or two ago. I mean, first of all, is that what happened? And if so, how did she find herself back behind the walls? Because when she gets out at the end of this movie, she is like a little spider ninja. I mean, she she goes right for the Achilles every time. She is like vivisecting people barehanded, like ripping them clean in two. Yeah. I don't know how she could possibly have been reconfiscated by these by these two helicopter parents, you know, <laughs> armed with a hammer. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, these are both valid questions. Let me expound on mine first. Clearly, these two parents, based on their performances, are meant to be very odd. But when we get right down to the end of the movie, what we have is a situation where... These two people have a daughter who is born with a pretty serious facial deformity.
1: Yeah, with, with a bad case of a Jeff the Killer face.
0: Right. Now, the right thing to do, of course, would have been to treat her just like a normal child or to give her to some kind of medical personnel who could care for her rather than closing her up in the walls. So they're not meant to be fully righteous people i get that
1: well the thing is i mean she is just pure evil the sister i mean she just looks demonic inside it, it, it reminds me of like the penguins backstory in batman returns where he eats a cat <laughs> when, he's, when when he's all of two months old right you know the like wheeling humber him around in that gothic pram you know right. it's 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 it, tim burton full tilt and i almost wish we'd gotten like a flat it would have been comic booky as hell but i almost wish we'd gotten a flashback to that effect you know to kind of indicate that the parents have actually been living under her thumb all this time that even though she's in captivity maybe she's been psychologically terrorizing them whispering to them at night the way that she does with their son you could do all kinds of twisted stuff with that it really does seem like she sprang from Satan's loins she's just pure malice it's not like if they had just not stuck her in a crawl space that it would have been like that Eric Stoltz movie where he's where he's deformed mask yeah oh yeah yeah
0: Although, that is certainly the narrative the sister is trying to sell, I think.
1: Yes, unconvincingly, through her insane Jeff the Killer grimace.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, setting aside the question of just how culpable the parents are for doing that, I don't understand why they're weird, Margaret White, shitty, abusive parents toward Peter, who as the sister often complains is a perfect cherub child yeah why are they throwing him in a dungeon even if he did something bad like that that doesn't seem to be the move why are well, even, they even, weird toward him outside of that it yeah. just doesn't tactically, really make sense
1: sticking him in the bu- in the basement doesn't even make sense tactically because it's putting him one would think in closer proximity with his sister who he's not supposed to know about
0: well, yeah, because you know, at one I mean, time she was kept in the pit. Yeah. And presumably, at least some of the time, she has access to the basement again. So it's, it's very—I don't understand why the parents treat Peter the way they do, unless they're just meant to have completely snapped, which I guess is possible.
1: Well, I mean, if you can abuse one child to a very extreme degree, I can understand how you would abuse another child to a somewhat lesser degree— but I do think it would just play creepier and maybe even more psychologically plausible, but certainly creepier if they were more or less outwardly normal and they had just done this unspeakable thing to his older sibling that they, you know, and that was verboten, you know, and they had tried to put it behind them. But it's not like, it's not like they drowned her like a sack of cats. They're trying, I think, to reach some kind of a middle ground where, I don't know, it's very odd. They don't really have psychologies worth unpacking. I mean, Mm -hmm. the reason to keep the older sister alive in the walls is to not have blood on your hands, I guess, not have the stain of her murder on your conscience. But they seem so nutty that they would have just eliminated her, you know? I mean, it's just so the performances are just so hammy and the way it's written is so fucking monsters that I don't know that never made any sense to me really. And then the, the kid is not a little Wednesday Adams. The kid is perfectly normal. Uh, you, you actually, he's so normal that you feel the sister's frustration <laughs> with <him. laughs> how He has no right to be that normal. Having grown up in that environment. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Setting all that aside, we return to your question, namely, if the sister killed the little trick-or-treater girl, how the fuck did they get her back in the walls when she's apparently a superhuman murder machine? That's yeah. an excellent question, I and I have absolutely no answer.
1: The idea of her creeping around town at night in a barbarian sort of way—I think the hobo has a line to that effect—that sometimes the mother or whatever, mama, the thing. The beast woman comes out of the house under cover of darkness sometimes. That's a scary premise, but there's no way that if she got out, she would come back under lock and key, you know, of her own volition.
0: Especially because the whole kickoff to the climax is her getting Peter to let her out. Yes. If she could come and go as she pleased, she wouldn't need to get him to do that.
1: Right. Well, and I think that loses something because there is kind of an evil genie resonance to that. The fact that she has to trick him into pushing the grandfather clock out of the way. That felt very resident evil to me, you Mm -hmm. know, and now she's free. The cat's out of the bag. Can't put the genie back in the bottle. That loses something. If there was a previous successful escape attempt on her part that did not involve him, and it just it it, it, compl- it over complicates things. You need to have that fairy tale simplicity that she's been in there this whole time uninterrupted, and only he, by virtue of their shared blood or whatever their familial connection, he has the key, the tool, the whatever to spring her from this cage and, and and then pay the price. I don't know. I'm waxing poetic here. My point is that, especially after he Rapunzel's <laughs> her hair, my soul was crying out for <laughs> a little a little more, and this runs kind of counter to what you were saying before, but like a little more leanness in terms of the storytelling, if not the filmmaking per se, at least the actual events that have unfolded. I just don't, I mean, part of it is that the movie is all smokescreen, right? I mean, the, the reason to bring a missing trick-or-treater whose skull is in the pumpkin patch into things is that it muddies the water just enough that you kind of can't figure out what's going on. And I honestly think that's why the parents' performances are what they are. It's just to stir things up and make things cloudy so that... It is a little bit more difficult to discern that the actual villain of the piece is going to be the girl in the wall. Right. And I just think that it's successful in that regard, but in the final analysis, it's one wrinkle too many, and it interferes with the sort of fairy tale simplicity that I was looking for in this material. I wish she had told him bedtime stories, that maybe they'd known each other for a little longer, like maybe. When the movie picks up, she has just begun speaking to him. She's broken her silence for some reason. Well, she actually, actually not for some reason. The movie sort of lampshades this. She says she had to wait for him to be big enough to tip the clock over. Yeah. Which is fine. That makes enough sense. He still looks a little too little to be able to push it over. But we'll let the filmmakers fudge it. I don't really care about that. However, I wish, almost like Phantom of the Opera style, Sing to Me, My Angel of Music, I wish that they had had interactions prior to the movie opening. Even if it was just like once or twice throughout his childhood, if he'd been like in the bath once and thought he heard something behind the wall. The idea that she's been there this whole time is creepy, and I I don't think the movie does enough with that. It certainly doesn't do enough with it, at the tail end, that epilogue needed a lot more breathing room, as we've said. There also could have been a prologue that was a little bit more drawn out, and which showed you a few key episodes in his adolescence where maybe she intervened in some small way and tried to, I don't know, mold him. Because that's what she's doing, she's conditioning him to be an asset for her. I just think that her vow of silence doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I understand that in order for him to be fully useful, you need to wait until he's you know, got that clock pushing strength, you know, in his, in his little body. But I don't know. I'm envisioning a movie with like an extra 10% on either end and 20% less in the middle. And I think I think I would have liked that a lot more. I'm sure I would have.
0: Now there's also a somewhat more minor related point relative to the sister and how she's viewed in terms of like her abilities and whatnot. There are multiple occasions where it seems as though she is closing doors by pure magic. Yeah, Some of them, the angles are such that it's feasible that she was just on the other side of the door physically moving the door, and that's fine. But at one point, there's a wide of the front door of the house, and this is from the inside of the house, and somebody, I don't remember who, is trying to get out, and then the door slams shut. And the way the shot is framed, there is no way that the sister could have gotten a hand or a foot on it and we didn't see it. There's just the door closed by itself.
1: Maybe Peter's got psychic powers. I'm saving that for the sequel. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, but th- number one, I know you're being facetious, but number two, the scene is not set up in a way for that to even make sense. It's not like <laughs> Peter's like, ah, I'm going to trap the bully in here so he can die or whatever. It's just the sister can magically close doors. And then if that's yeah. the case, why can't she magically move refrigerators and grandfather clocks and unlock doors and skitter around and leave whenever the hell she wanted?
1: Well, you'd think, she. I mean, her... Her strength is such that she ought to have been able to just burrow her way to, you know to, to like a fucking groundhog, you know, out under the lawn. She is just an entity. And I and I kind of like that or would if the movie was better about grounding us in the kid's perspective, because he would perceive this terrible mutant as being like a witch, like a spider thing. Mm-hmm. If it were tinged more with his subjectivity, I might have found it very scary. Instead, I just found it, at best, kind of enjoyably oddball. It's like the end of a Tales from the Crypt episode or something. I mean, it's basically the same reveal that we get in Barbarian, but mm. something about it is just so much more Looney Tunes. I don't know. It just, just just so much more... I'm always invoking R.L. Stein these days, but it is. It's Goosebumps. It's, it's Are You Afraid of the Dark?
0: Ultimately, because the perspective we're anchored in most of the time is what you would call objective, it's just like the filmmakers wanted to have their cake and eat it too and have a little bit of the supernatural hanging about things when the actual thrust of the film is just that she is a deformed human being. But apparently, occasionally, she can also close doors with her mind. Like, just have a little consistency. It's <laughs> frustrating. I also, I was kind of annoyed. We already talked about how the Bad Seed stuff has just kind of one scene where it happens. And we didn't necessarily need to see, like, multiple scenes of her getting Peter to do something bad. But that's also the one indication we get prior to her evil laughter that really suggests that maybe all is not right with the girl in the walls. It's literally just that. Other than that, yeah. she's just all—I don't want to say sunshine and rainbows because she's a girl trapped in the walls. But she's <laughs> she's all sweetness toward him yes, and, and yeah, and. Obviously, if they laid it on too thick, then it's just super obvious. But even one more instance of the mask maybe slipping a little bit. And even if Peter doesn't notice, or if he does, you know, one way or another, if the audience can see that instead of just constantly having the crazy parents shoved in our faces, I might have appreciated that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, the parents do overstay their welcome. Yeah, I mean there's such at one point the the mother she takes the line wait till your father gets home and drawing out the syllables the way she does and the amount of panting that she injects into it she turns those six words into like a multi-stage soliloquy it's like, <laughs> wait till your father gets home <laughs> it's like it, it, everything is kind of pitched at that level even when it's subdued, it's subdued with a capital S, you know, <laughs> and underlined and italicized. Mm-hmm. It's where subtlety goes to die, or it uh, it, it puts the B in subtlety, to <laughs> you know, coin a phrase. Yeah, and that just, like I said, it's there to to muddy the water and, and stir things up. And other than clouding the narrative a little bit, I don't think that it's much good for anything because all it does is strand you in a house with these two wackos who you kind of think okay well they're probably not as crazy as they seem because that would be too obvious or maybe they are but they will put put it this way what makes the reminder of people under the stairs so weird is that this is a movie where, in this case, it's not people, plural, and it's not under the stairs so much as in the wall, but nevertheless, in this movie, the thing under the stairs is evil. (laughs) It is is like at least as evil, if not more so, as its captors, whereas when Wes Craven does this kind of a reveal, the people under the stairs are basically hostages. You know, Mm. I mean, I don't think that movie is really that rich in subtext or that profound or anything but it's got a little bit of a class allegory going on a little bit of a, a political context to it anyway it's got a brain in its head here the two parents are just hamming it up like 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 uh everett mcgill and wendy Roby, and then they're not the clear villains of the piece because the thing that they've been keeping under lock and key is the is a murder machine, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly, a ninja spider <laughs> in a woman's skin. So it's 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 just kind of gives you this who cares factor, and that's fatal, of course. Yeah.
0: Now I have a question for you. I was wondering this throughout my viewing experience. At first, I wasn't sure, just because I came in from the brightly lit movie theater hallway immediately into the fully dark theater with the movie already started. But as I was there for a while longer and the problem never really abated even as my eyes must have adjusted. I don't know whether this was a projection issue or whether this is just an issue with the film. Was the film super dark for you like visually, like muddy?
1: Um, it might have just been a projection issue. I can't really weigh in on that or, you know, anything of a cinematographic nature because I watched a shitty cam rep of this one as I I have often of late. So I have to reserve judgment on that. It would be unethical of me to render a verdict. Yeah,
0: because on the one hand, I feel like of late I've seen multiple movies where they're just maybe projected too dimly.
1: Yeah, it is a dying art. A bunch of uh, IMAX 70mm screenings of Oppenheimer got bungled over the past week, from what I hear.
0: I I just barely snagged a ticket for a 70mm IMAX showing in Grand Rapids, but I have to wait fucking two weeks from tomorrow to see the goddamn thing.
1: Oppenheimer, it's a fucking megaton bomb unto itself.
0: Well, that and, you know, a there's...
1: cultural nuke. Yeah. <laughs>
0: There are apparently only nineteen IMAX seventy millimeter screens in the country. Right. And so people are fucking making pilgrimages and buying shit out. This is part of the reason I hate selling assigned seats, particularly so far in advance online. Yeah. I, it's take us back to the old days for things yeah, like no, this.
1: Seriously. You don't get those fun news stories anymore where people are camped out on the sidewalk. That used to be how you knew a movie was going to be a hit. You just saw it with your own two eyes. It wasn't this fucking esoteric thing like everything is nowadays where it's just in the cloud or on the internet. I don't know. Nothing is real anymore. You can't fucking feel anything with your hands.
0: (laughs) We used to make things in this country. (sighs) Yeah. So anyway, on the one hand, there has been a bit of an epidemic of bad projection. On the other hand, there has been a concurrent epidemic of movies shot on digital, like virtually every movie is nowadays, being lit for dog shit. Yeah, And and gaffing being a dying art also. People just don't know how to fucking light things anymore because when you were shooting on film you were required to light things by a certain amount. And now, technically, digital cameras can do more shit and see more shit in the dark. But also, if you don't give them enough light, you still can't make things out like you should be able to.
1: I I didn't have a problem with that this time around. I found The Boogeyman way less legible than this movie, although that is much likelier the fault of the guy with the camcorder or or the fucking cell phone or whatever the pirates use nowadays.
0: Right. Okay, well, I I guess that's an open question, but either way, bad projection or bad lighting on the shoot, something was wrong on that front.
1: I only watch these shitty cam rips when it's a theatrical-only release that isn't hitting digital in any way, shape, or form prior to us having to record our, our schedule being set in stone mm-hmm. uh, and not by me <laughs> right so half the time if not more these movies are debuting in theaters as well as on shutter or hulu or god knows where and then i can find a, a digital version of it that's more than passable so really it gets back to the the funky release strategy that you kicked off the episode talking about put it in five theaters, but also don't put it online. You know, it's just, they're kind of um, (laughs) making it live in the basement or behind the clock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, I've said all of these hostile things. I'd like to quickly say a couple of at least relatively positive things. First of all, the parents' performances, as kind of overwrought and one note as they were, I did enjoy them. There's a sort of... Camp pleasure, yeah. I think to both that I wasn't totally on board with, but I was sort of vibing with pretty much the whole time.
1: I would have been if it had been a little bit more of a Jekyll Hyde thing. Where I mean, you know, like the mother, for example. I don't want her to be a total Stepford wife when the teacher comes calling, but there has to be some variance there if she's able to put on enough of a performance. To put the teacher's fears to rest, at least temporarily, and then click, the you know the door swings shut, and she wheels around, and then it's Kabuki theater again. <laughs> you know, that, that would be quite good. There's just There just wasn't any kind of modulation there, which is at least as much of a screenwriting issue as it is anything else.
0: Right. That's fair. The one other thing I want to highlight, and I think we might differ on this, because It's the nightmare scene that you mentioned in the synopsis where he's spotting both of his parents behaving strangely in the dark at night. I know you probably didn't care for it because you compared it to The Visit, and I know you don't think that highly of The Visit, but that scene was really the only one in the movie that got under my skin.
1: I can see how it would. Was it when the lights cut out and you heard the mother's stomping feet for way longer than should have been possible? As she's like sprinting down the hallway.
0: Yeah, that got to me. The glowing eyes that they both have kind of got to uh-huh. me.
1: You got a thing for those. You like that sleep paralysis movie that I didn't like too, with the glowing eyes. Right. It boiled. Uh, up.
0: Yeah, something about the glowing eyes taps into something primal with me, I guess. Yeah. And also, the dad does this weird, like, chattering jaw thing. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, that, that sort of grudge-like croaking. I didn't care for that. Everything else I was okay with. M. Night Shyamalan. Vibes notwithstanding. Not yeah.
0: Yeah. I I don't know. For whatever reason, that squicked me out in suitably effective fashion also. So I liked that scene relatively well.
1: Yeah, I, I, it was not like a low point for me or anything. And I'm not even M. Night's number one hater. I think for that... Sure. Uh, I have I still have my knives out for the visit a little bit just because that marked the turning point where the modern shamalana sense kind of kicked off <laughs> and I just Yeah there was just a chorus of people going like M night's back, baby and you know, I mean I think he's made some okay movies since uh what twenty fifteen when mm-hmm. the visit came out, but I don't think the visit is anything to write home about. Sure. And I think he's still just as hit or miss as he's ever been. Right. So but yeah I mean it's not like a black mark on this movie's reputation or anything and actually the, the mother the you know the running down the hall what, what happens is she's running down the hall and just spatially she ought to come sprinting through his bedroom door in another few strides uh, yeah. the lights cut out and then you hear her stampeding through the darkness for too long. way longer for, for way too long And then there's a lull, and then she comes lurching out of the darkness. And honestly, the delay, as is often the case, the delay is much scarier than the payoff. I actually would have found that nightmare a lot scarier if she had never come through the door, but had maybe emerged from somewhere else. You You know? know, but like I said, not a low point. I just at the risk of damning with faint praise. It's really not that faint because it's the shock moment that the whole movie's been building up to. I like the first few minutes of the sister spidering around. I think that the camera work is a little too neat in the way that it just gives you little glimpses. It doesn't feel like as rough around the edges as it maybe should. It doesn't give you a feeling of panic that the bullies would be feeling or that Peter would be feeling. It feels like the camera is hitting its marks. The Mm -hmm. whole time, just to show you exactly the right amount of the creature, which is to say, you know, the bare minimum. But for what it is, it's entertaining, and it works better for me than the face reveal, God knows, because you haven't seen the Jeff the Killer visage at this point, and it works better than the Rapunzel thing or the contortion act basically after they get into the basement you see too much of the thing and the spell is broken but at least initially when she's <laughs> on her on her ninja murder rampage it's goldilocks you know it's just the right amount right so as for recommendations this mo- reminded me of a lot of movies all of which i liked a little better than this one if not a lot better in some cases I already mentioned Summer of 84. That's the one where the margin is thinnest. Another movie that is often compared to Summer of 84 is Clove Hitch Killer, Mm. which is about a boy who figures out that his dad is a serial killer. And I kind of thought, again, going into this movie basically blind, that... That was going to be the crux of the whole thing, was the kid figuring out that his parents have murdered a trick-or-treater and done God knows what else. A little girl who's now haunting their house. I held on to that ghost thing right up until it became impossible for me to continue doing So <laughs> Sure. And it made me even a little past that point. But if she um, were
0: a ghost, it would have made a lot more sense for her to be closing doors without her hands.
1: Correct. <laughs> Clovis Killer is quite good, I think. Obviously, the best film of recent years to have a reveal like the one this movie has is Parasite. Mm. That's, you know, (laughs) at least in the last decade or more, the ultimate people in the walls movie. There's a movie from 10 or more years ago called The Pact. Spoiler alert that you think it's a haunted house movie the whole time. And actually, it is a haunted house movie the whole time. But also there's a guy living living in the house going bump in the night it's kind of best of both worlds thing it's not just like uh the boy the first one mm-hmm. <laughs> before the sequel does a head spinning 180 <laughs> but the the, the first yeah. boy you think is a haunted house movie and then it turns out it's just a guy the pact is a uh, porque no los dos and i thought that was Pretty cool, but I haven't seen it in a long time. And the director's follow-up feature was um, The Prodigy. So,
0: Oh, that was the same director?
1: I think it was. Nicholas I, something?
0: I'll take your uh, word for it. I, yeah, I didn't happen I, to know that.
1: I mentioned Barbarian at one point. Not as good as Parasite, but it got a lot of attention last year. And it does the monster woman in the walls thing better than this movie does. My two big recommendations are one for a film horror comedy from the late 80s called parents directed by bob balaban strangely weird if i'm not wrong about that and i don't think i am and starring randy quaid Uh, it took me a second randy quaid as this sort of leave it to beaver father knows best you know ward cleaver type who happens to be a cannibal you know and and he and his wife are trying to initiate their son into a life of, of cannibalism to the best of my recollection and like the, the kid is wising up to their schemes and it's kind of broadly farcical but also rather grim ultimately I remember it being kind of a downer but not in a bad way I thought that it was a pretty resonant sort of Reaganite suburban horror comedy satire thing and the other movie, which is my favorite of the ones I've rattled off, except for Parasite, but it's a closer second than its reputation might suggest. is a movie called The Baby from the early 70s, and I was reminded of this movie over and over again. Basically, every time the teacher in this movie made a house call, did a welcome check on the kid. The protagonist of The Baby is, if I remember right, a social worker, and she becomes aware of this messed up family that has a mentally impaired adult man living under their roof, and they call him the baby. And he wears little kid pajamas all day long and sleeps in a gigantic crib and is basically being made to live like a big-ass toddler. And (laughs) the uh, social worker is trying to extricate him from that situation. And when she's gone... The crazy comes all the way out, and we see the family torturing him with cattle prods and all kinds of heinous stuff. And it's, I think, much shrewder than this movie in a couple ways. It has a twist ending, which I shan't spoil. But even prior to that, I like the way. And I, I got on this movie's case for muddying the water too much plot-wise. The baby is shrewd, I think, in the way that it muddies the water in terms of character motivation, because right from the outset, although obviously our sympathies are with the social worker rather than this family of nutters, the social worker has kind of a holier-than-thou streak Mm. and is a little strident. So it creates this almost, um, it's almost got like like a 70s John Waters kind of vibe to it where you sort of can't root for anyone. Right. You know, everyone's a little bit not to be trusted other than the baby of course the you know the so-called baby who's totally guileless <laughs> right and innocent but uh really unsettling movie I think exploitation horror movie directed by Ted post I want to say who did a dirty Harry sequel among <laughs> other things I think I think the baby is his his best that I've seen I also think he did a uh, planet of the Apes sequel sure <laughs> yeah that tracks I couldn't <laughs> tell you which one <laughs> off the top of my head. So that's a whole slew of recommendations for you folks. But if, if you had to watch two, I would say parents and the baby. If you had to watch just one, I would say the baby. I'm assuming that you've already seen parasite.
0: Right. And we've already reviewed it. So,
1: yeah. So naturally, if you're doing your homework, you would have <laughs> seen it by now.
0: Right. Well, since Matt has given you a whole passel of recommendations, I'll be relatively brief. First, Matt already touched on this, and this is sort of an anti-recommendation, i.e. a don't bother, stay away. But as he said, this is very reminiscent of The Boy, (laughs) pre-Brahms The Boy 2 retcon, where the twist is that the doll is not possessed or supernatural in any way. It is, in fact, just a grown man living in the walls doing... Crazy spooky shit. Same thing.
1: Well, and the boy numero uno is like a solid four out of ten. It's really Brahms that drags it, is, it down. Is into a the one mire. and a half to two. Yeah, yeah, right. And retroactively makes the first movie all but worthless. You know, if you take them as a package deal, which why would you? you know? <laughs> right. If, if, if assuming you can decouple them, the first movie might be worth watching, but only just. Yeah.
0: My actual recommendation, and I already touched on this a little bit earlier, but it is the second season of Castle Rock. <laughs> if you want to watch Lizzie Kaplan do a kind of high-key, tightly wound, crazy person, helicopter mother performance.
1: Well, if nails that Kathy Bates voice, it's like a slightly coked up Annie Wilkes. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> but the impression is on point.
0: Yeah if that's what you're looking for, it's definitely worth watching. I enjoy both seasons of Castle Rock. Kind of a shame that Hulu pulled the plug on it. I don't know if it was just COVID or not a lot of streams or some combination thereof. But both of the two seasons they did make are worth watching. And yeah, season two is the one with the connection here. So that's my recommendation. All right. Well, the sister has been Rapunzeled down into the pit. She will not be haunting our nightmares in the same way that she's supposedly going to be haunting Peter's. So I guess that's good. Until next time, I'm Jim Smith.
1: I'm Ed Daisy.
0: And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the Bumpers was taken from Cobweb 2023 Official Trailer Lizzie Kaplan, Woody Norman, Cleopatra Coleman, Anthony Starr uploaded by Lionsgate Movies. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, August 6th and we will be discussing Talk to Me where teenagers summon spirits using an embalmed hand a party trick that soon goes horribly wrong. See you then.